Would you join with me as I pray? Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees and knows all things. Every heart is open before you. All of our thoughts are known to you. And we pray that your Spirit who reveals you to us, we pray, and also the one who searches our hearts, we pray that he might uh, have complete freedom among us this day. Again, I pray that confess if there be anything in my life, Lord, that would hinder your word today, I pray that you would cleanse me anew and afresh. And we ask, Father, that uh, your word, like seed, would find its way into the soil of our hearts, and that you would bring forth the fruit that you desire to see occur. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. My, 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 how one's perspective changes when you become a parent. Years ago, I remember when I was growing up, on numerous occasions, my father would confront me for my recent exhibition of rebellious behavior, or most likely it was probably because I was having such a disrespectful attitude toward my mother. And I can remember wishing, when I had that private meeting with my father, somehow I could magically escape that room at that moment. I kept thinking, oh, if I could just somehow escape the consequences of my behavior and bad attitude. I must let you know that my father, as far as I can remember and recall, never, ever lost his temper with me in those confrontations. You need to know that. And I can remember him saying to me, as he was about to apply chastisement to my backside, I guess you could say, he would say to me these words, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And every time he said that, I thought to myself, yeah, sure. (laughs) Like he had lost touch with reality or something. And of course, I had no clue what he meant. No clue. Fast forward 20 years, I gained a lot of new insights into my father's words. I can remember when one of my own children, they will remain nameless, did a particular misdeed. I don't remember what it was at this time, what the specific issue was, but I remember asking a question. I remember trying to gain from them an honest answer. And I can remember with very, uh, with great vividness that the answer came back to me in a bald lie. And when I spoke to this child, I can remember vividly going over the concern I have about them. And I can remember a wellspring of concern just flooding up through my soul and in my heart as I realized that not only did this child of mine rebel against God's authority and rebel against my delegated authority, but now my offspring has kept refusing to admit the truth. And the direction of their heart at that moment is heading in a very bad direction indeed. And at that moment, my father's words flashed through my mind. This will hurt me more than it will hurt you. And I can remember beginning to cry as I told my precious little child how much I loved them and how concerned I was for their heart that was being hardened by sin. I'll tell you one thing, confronting sin in your own child and confronting sin in someone else's life ought never to be done casually. 
uncaringly or with an attitude of indifference. I wish I could say that my heart was always rightly motivated when I've confronted my children when they rebelled. But I did learn some valuable insights into my father's deep and enduring love. He cared enough for me to confront me when I did wrong. And when he spoke to me, he spoke the truth to me in love. It is these memories that have flooded my mind as I've once again contemplated this week uh, further reflections upon the, the statements of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. I invite you to turn there in your Bible as we uh, look at page 1,174, 1,174 page is the page in your pew Bible, 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel. If you were not here last week, I'd urge you to uh, listen to that message that's online or in perhaps a CD form. Um, we looked and considered the first uh, section, verses 13 to verses 32, we considered the fact that Jesus has a character and he has the qualifications to serve as a just judge. And I was trying to emphasize the greatness of Christ. We ought to look at this text and not cringe and be embarrassed by it. We ought to be impressed with Jesus as we read these heavy words that he spoke. This morning I want us to look at the remainder of the chapter beginning in verse 33 down to verse 39. And I want us to answer the question, why is Jesus' encounter with the scribes and these Pharisees a great example of speaking the truth in love? Follow along with me as I read, uh, beginning in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're considering the question, why could it be said that this encounter that Jesus had with these religious Jewish leaders, first century, is indeed one of the greatest examples of speaking the truth in love. The first answer I'll give to that question is to say that Jesus' truthful warning did not overlook, it did not gloss over the serious consequences of sin. In this text of Scripture, chapter 23, Jesus used a number of comparisons to accurately describe the corrupt religious leaders, these false prophets. 
You'll notice in verses 13, 15, 23, 25, 27, and verse 29, Jesus called them hypocrites, which literally means people who wear the mask, people who are play-acting, and who appear one way, but in reality, they're someone else. And so Jesus accurately described them as people who are hypocrites. Inwardly, they had hearts that are full of robbery and self-indulgence, when in reality, on the outward side, they looked like they were such pious, upright, and righteous people. And then we read in verses 16, 19, and 24, Jesus called these leaders blind guides or blind men. Because while they claimed to be authoritative teachers of the law of Moses, in reality, they undermined the law of Moses. They rejected the teachings of God's greatest prophet, and that's the real key here, the greater prophet than even Moses had been right there among them who was uh, teaching them. And for three years he heard them teach. And yet they rejected the, even the prophet who was greater than Moses, and they've encouraged those who they teach to follow them and to ignore and dismiss the teachings of the greatest prophet ever, Jesus Christ, and they're leading all these people into damnation. So indeed, they are the blind guides leading others in their blindness. But 33, verse 33, I want us to consider this morning the title and the name that he called them, the serpents and brood of vipers. Jesus used this metaphorical term, to illustrate the danger that was posed by the false teaching of these leaders. Vipers were very small poisonous snakes, which when they're not moving in that particular locality, they would look like and appear to be small sticks on the ground. And it's not too surprising that we read in the book of Acts, chapter 28, that Paul, when he is traveling uh, on ship headed up to Rome that they have a shipwreck. He lands there. It's cold. It's damp. They've been in a terrible storm. He's trying to make a fire. He grabs some firewood and in the firewood is one of these vipers that bites him on the hand. And so Jesus knew that these false shepherds, these people who were the vipers, the brood of vipers, were determined to destroy him in order to hold on to their power and their control. And so his specific indictment, as he uses this terminology, serpents and brood of vipers, is designed to help them face the truth of who they really are and to face their true condition. Along with exposing their deception, he also issued a serious warning of what was yet to come. Because they were in denial, he made sure to point out that unrepented sin always carries with it serious consequences. And so as the leaders of Israel, they had a false sense of security. And Jesus pointed out, along with a long line of true prophets through the biblical history, he starts with Abel, and then he makes his way all the way through and says, uh, until you get to the point in which it says in 2 Corinthians that there was a Zechariah, a prophet, who, Second uh, Chronicles, sorry, Second Chronicles, uh, there was a, who was in the prof- place of the prophets, and he was killed. And there could have been another one recently who was also a guy named Zechariah. There are many Zechariahs in the scriptures. It's unclear exactly which one he's referring to. But he's saying basically from A to Z, all these different people who have spoken on behalf of God, who have tried to bring truth, they have been destroyed, they have been rejected, they have been those who have been dismissed. He says, in light of that, you who are false teachers, 
and you have been following in their ways, verse 33, you've now filled up the measure of guilt of your fathers. In other words, their sins and their guilt had reached its full limit and the fallout was coming upon that generation. Jesus did not utter empty words of warning. He was referring on that day to a day of infamy for, if you will, the Jews of that generation in the first century, and it took place in the year 70 A.D. In response to the Jewish nation's attempt to revolt against Roman rule, you can read the history about this, the Roman army under General Titus surrounded Jerusalem, not with just a handful of soldiers, 80,000 Roman soldiers. And these soldiers attacked the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem and brutalized them and completely destroyed the temple, leaving only what's left today, and that is the foundation stones on the Wailing Wall, which go back uh, quite a long time. Everything else was just dismantled, taken apart. And there are many archaeological uh, findings that they have, even artifacts from the temple, Uh, that have been found that have the scarring and the actual burn marks of fire that indicate, indeed, these things really did happen. All the records in the temple were destroyed. All the priestly families, you couldn't tell who was a priest, who was qualified and disqualified. All of the sacrifices ceased in the temples. And even though the scribes and the Pharisees claimed in 30 A.D., the time in which Jesus was speaking these words, they claimed to be seated on the seat of Moses and that they had the authority to speak and have these positions of authority, that chair was ripped out from under them 40 years later in a very dramatic fashion in which their whole religious world completely was destroyed. Indeed, when you think about this text, Galatians 6 verse 7 comes to mind because what Jesus is trying to help them see by calling them this brood of vipers is that they're dangerous and they're deceptive Realize, he says, God, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. Indeed, while most vipers are going to slither away and escape from the vicinity uh, where there is some sort of wildfire burning out of control, Jesus is warning these particular false prophets. He's saying, you are not going to escape, even though most snakes make their way out of that area. He says, you are not going to make it out. They are going to face the devastating consequences of unrepented sin. You say, these are such heavy words. Yes, they are heavy words, but they are words spoken truthfully in love. I believe Jesus was saying to them, you need to repent. You've got to face the fact of who you really are. It's a reminder that we as parents also need to use our God-given responsibility to warn our children. And others of us as believers, we need to see these opportunities of speaking the truth to others and warn them of the dangers of various things that they pursue if they pursue sin and not repent. Sinful choices bring serious consequences. I've specifically been thinking this week about Proverbs 6, verse 27 page 768 in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along. But there's a danger that a parent, a father, mentions to his son regarding sexual immorality. You, don't, you think sexual sin's no big deal? and it's no, no, uh, you're, you're living in the dark ages to think you can't do and, 
and behave in whatever way you want to, listen to what the advice and the warning of this father toward his son. Proverbs six twenty seven. Can a man fake take fire, excuse me, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be burned? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. That's a word of warning, trying to help give a word to steer him away from the dangers of moving ahead in touching someone in a sexually uh, explicit way. Then if you look at the warning to just the general category of how people who become arrogant in their hearts and the dangers of pride, we read in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And there are a number of other warnings in Scripture. Even Paul, who warned the elders there in Ephesus, he warned them and saying, listen, there are savage wolves that are going to come into this precious flock of sheep in the church of Jesus Christ, and they're going to speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He says, therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. And so to speak to someone regarding the seriousness, the consequences of their sin can be done. It needs to be done truthfully. It needs to also be done in love. And that brings us to our second point here. Jesus' truthful warning did not omit compassion. It did not omit compassion and concern for those who face disastrous consequences of sin. It's so important that we not overlook these final words, verses 37 to 39, particularly verse 37. We gain such a valuable insight as Jesus spoke words that helped us understand his attitude toward these hard-hearted, arrogant spiritual leaders. Jesus' heart was tender toward those who appeared on the outside so pious and so better than, better than everyone else, and yet inside, in their hearts, they're full of hatred, and they're intent on destroying Jesus, the Messiah. Listen to what he says again, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Jesus here did not rattle off a long list of truthful indictments with little or no concern for those he warned. His words overflowed from a heart that was filled with love and tender concern. As he issued his just judgment, as he spoke words of truth, Jesus admitted that his heart loved and longed for his fellow Jews. Can't you hear him saying, Oh, Jerusalem. He's talking about all the Jewish people there in a representative way. One commentator, Warren Wearsby, has put it this way. He says, We cannot read this severe denunciation without marveling at the patience and goodness of God. No nation has been blessed like Israel. And yet no nation has sinned against God's goodness as has Israel. They have been the channel of God's blessing to the world for the salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4. Yet they suffered greatly in this world. Boy, have they suffered as they have rejected the Messiah. But these words of judgment, end of quote by the way, words of judgment and words of warning against 
the consequences of sin are best uttered with tears of sorrow. And I've thought through a number of examples of how that takes place throughout the pages of Scripture. As we read of Jeremiah, what was he called? He was called the weeping prophet. He warned his generation, not in a cold-hearted, indifferent fashion, wagging his finger at them, but we read in Jeremiah chapter 13, these words, If you will not listen to the word of the Lord, my heart will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears. It is Paul who wrote with a burdened heart to that church in Corinth that broke his heart time and time again. And as he wrote to that immature worldly church, he said these words in the second epistle he wrote to them in the second chapter. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with what? Many tears. Not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I especially have for you. And then later in the book of Philippians, when Paul referred to those who taught false doctrine, he didn't do so in a casual, indifferent fashion. He reminded of his readers that he had tears of love and concern in his eyes. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Paul does not speak about those who have rejected the truth in a way in which his heart is not broken in his sadness and grief over their, the, the, the destiny that they are facing in apart from God's grace and turning their hearts around. And so even Jesus, as He approached the city of Jerusalem, and as we sense the intensification of the opposition that has now been uh, uh, brought against Him, as it's very clear now that He is completely being rejected, and there is no sign of any change among the spiritual leadership, it is Jesus, two days before He spoke the words we read here in Matthew 23, He revealed His tender heart of compassion and concern for the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verse 41 and 42. When Jesus approached, He saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. The word wept is the same word used when people responded to the news that a loved one had died. It's a word that talked about wailing, deep grief expressed. Here is Jesus wailing and expressing deep grief over Jerusalem, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Jesus viewed these hard-hearted religious leaders and their disciples. He viewed them with eyes of compassion and loving concern. Despite the breadth and depth of their rejection, He nonetheless commissioned his followers to take to his own people, take them the good news of reconciliation, take them the gospel message, and make sure that they are included in hearing the good news. And yet, sadly, so many rejected that. That, that. That was the parable, it seemed to me, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 21, where he talked earlier about the tenants who came to the landowner 
uh, and there was a landowner who owned a, a particular uh, farm, and the tenants were there operating the farm, and when the owner had sent people, recall, to, to come and collect what was rightfully his, the fruit of the farm, the produce, and the benefits of that, they did what? They kept killing one worker after another after another, and then he said, well, send my own son. He ended up killing him as well. Despite the long history of rejection and murder of God's prophets, God in patient love sent whom? His one and only son. He sent his one and only son. And here we find further evidence, it seems to me, that God indeed fulfills what he revealed about himself in several places throughout Scripture, particularly Exodus 34, that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so that's why I've listed in your notes James Boyce's quote, which I think is so true. No one is ready to speak about judgment who has not first shed tears for those who are affected. Recently I had an experience where I was talking with someone who was sharing with me about some things that they had been reading in the Word. And then we had a time of prayer together. And in that time of prayer, this person broke down in tears because as they read the Word, someone in their mind they knew that they loved dearly, that they realized was headed in the wrong direction in life, they began to cry and weep for that person in prayer. Couldn't even finish the prayer for a moment. And I thought to myself, that's the kind of heart that God wants His people to have. We speak the truth, but we do so in love. We do so with tears in our eyes. We do so saying, we're no better than anybody else. We're just speaking the truth, but we do it because we care about you. And the problem with too many of us is that we don't show enough care and concern about somebody. We don't walk along enough with them in order for them to really hear us oftentimes and to sense that we really do care about them. When was the last time you had tears in your eyes when you were praying for somebody that you know is facing some ultimate consequences even now, perhaps, even in this life of sinful choices that they've made. Indeed, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you. Such tenderness, like a, a hen gathering her little chicks. But you're unwilling. Much we could say about that and could expand on it. I trust the Holy Spirit will apply it to our hearts where needed. I want us to just consider a thirdly here. I have a point here that sort of covers a couple of observations I want to make on the text. And that is thirdly, Jesus' truthful warning provides an opportunity for those of us here today to avoid consequences in which we might be deceived or find our own selves the consequences of deception. By that I mean this. First of all, I want us to notice that Jesus has a call here for His people to be real. Jesus' warning here in Matthew 23 is profitable for us, I believe, today. It's not just a word for those false teachers, but it serves as a warning to those of us who are Christ followers to be reminded that Jesus despises hypocrisy. And we, who oftentimes in the church need to hear this warning given to us as well, that we who have a tendency often to perhaps find ourselves wanting to wear a mask 
wanting to play act as if everything looks good on the outside and we're okay and nothing's wrong, nothing wrong in our heart or life. But the fact is that's a form of deception. It's living a lie. And therefore, indeed, as a form of deception, it is what we're called not to do in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, where we're encouraged and challenged to lay aside all falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And I would just say to you, as I've read through this text, and I heard Jesus' indictment, not once, but six times he emphasizes your phony baloney, your hypocrites, your play actors. I said to myself, Lord, I pray that we in our church will create and by your Spirit maintain an atmosphere which gives permission to and encourages people to be real, to be honest, to be vulnerable, to be transparent. And that we are people who need to be less concerned about our outward appearances and how people perceive us versus the real issues of what we're struggling with in our hearts. And I would make it my prayer that our church would always be a church that is viewed as a hospital for sinners rather than some wax museum for perfect specimens of saints, which are phony baloney. They're not real. I want to say this clearly. It is you have permission to admit that you struggle. And if your struggling is you struggle with lust, you ought to be able to admit it and be honest. We will love you anyway. If you struggle with depression or greed or fear or same-sex attraction or anxiety, or if you have a pattern in which you find yourself making choices of escaping from things in various ways of drinking excessively or overeating or having uh, uh, promiscuous sex or shopping out of control or gambling or whatever it is you're struggling with, we give you permission to be real and to say, I'm struggling, rather than be a hypocrite. And we as a church need to be able to embrace people who struggle and not kick them to the curb. We need to say, Join the struggle. I'm struggling too. What an indictment of the church is that when people find themselves going to the care center secretly, when they find themselves pregnant and they're outside of marriage or whatever, and the church can't minister to them because they're afraid of what it's going to look like and ruin the image of their family and ruin the image of... Let's not be hypocrites, people. Let's be real and let's admit that we all struggle And we need to be able to speak the truth, admit the truth, and deal with the truth. Because that's where life begins to take hold. That's where the Spirit begins to work. He's the Spirit of truth. It is my heart's desire that we learn as a church family, and we're learning this, we've got a ways to go, that we learn to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to the full range of real struggles that all of us face in idolatrous hearts. And we all face them, folks. I do, we all do. And rather than hiding our struggles and hiding our sins, that's one of the real purposes of our growth groups. It's a place that you can talk and admit, I struggle, I need help, I need prayer. I need to be held accountable. I could say much more about that. I want to move on to my another observation in this text. And that is 
Secondly, I want a call to resist revising the gospel. Jesus talks about here of sending out his prophets, wise men, and scribes, verse 34. And he indicates that they're not going to be treated very nicely for quite a while. And that indeed proved itself true. It's still proving itself true today. Another tendency that we need to avoid is the thinking somehow that the world is going to embrace Christ's kingdom if we package the gospel in the right way. That if somehow by marketing the gospel and tweaking it a certain way and presenting it in a certain fashion, then somehow this generation of people, they're going to see the relevancy of the gospel. They're going to sort of embrace it. We're going to see a major, a major uh, a widespread acceptance of it that will somehow fit into and, and be viewed as fashionable to the world. Acceptable. Somehow there has been a tendency in every generation of Christians to somehow adapt the gospel in such a way that it is less offensive and less demanding. And some in the church try to make the gospel cool and acceptable to those who are in the world. May I remind you that the Apostle Paul did not reinvent or revise the gospel as a result of the continued persecution that he endured when he ministered where? He went right into the synagogues. Got thrown out, got beaten, got uh, stoned. He got 39 lashes uh, time and time and time again. He continued to proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen and spoke it to the Jews until they rejected it. He was thrown out and then he'd go off and speak to the Gentiles. There's no need to revise the gospel. We just have to faithfully proclaim it. And thirdly, This will stir us all up, I'm sure, again. As I read verse 37, there's a call here to remain in biblical tension. And by that I mean, in verse 37, when Jesus talks about, I wanted to gather you as children together, you're unwilling. It's another example of the doctrine that every person is held responsible for their choices. Particularly their choice to refuse to believe upon Christ. You need to read John 3 and understand what it means that the reason why Jesus was so strongly rejected is because as light he revealed them with all the darkness that was in them. And they didn't want to be exposed and they definitely did not want to embrace him because of revealing who they really were. And Jesus here is revealing who they really are. They they hate him all the more and that's why they're determined to destroy him. But notice in the text here we must strive to maintain a biblical balance that affirms God's Sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility in salvation. Both are in the Scriptures. Both are taught in the Scriptures. It is true that God is sovereign in salvation. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you've never read that, you need to read it verse 18 through the rest of the chapter. He says clearly that God has chosen the foolish. God has chosen the weak. God has chosen the base things of this world. So that why? There is no boasting. And if you've come somehow into saving faith, somehow you've come from your darkness into the kingdom of light, there is no reason you should be boasting, saying, I'm smarter or better than this person. But he says in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is by your doing you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, he says, I'm sorry, by his doing, by Christ's doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So the teaching that God is sovereign, salvation is there in Scripture. We cannot get around that. But we also need to affirm 
that those who reject Christ and those who do not believe in Him and refuse to believe in Him are held responsible for their unbelief. Both are taught, both are affirmed. And to teach that one is true and not the other is to distort the clear teaching of the Bible. Well, there's so many things to think about in this text. It's a little overwhelming, but I go back to where I was at the beginning. Having that time with my father in a room where I was looking for some way out. And my father's saying to me, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. It hurts sometimes to speak the truth because you don't know how a person's going to respond and because sometimes people don't want to hear the truth and they react very strongly to it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't speak it. It just means we need to be careful that we speak it in love. And apart from that love, speaking it is like a clanging cymbal and we just become an irritant, a little tiny pebble in somebody's shoe which they wish they could just throw out and get rid of. May God help us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we again realize how powerful your word is. It reveals our hearts, exposes us, Lord. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that Jesus spoke truth. But he did so with great, compassionate, tender-hearted love. Help us, Father, today to examine our hearts, to see if there is an evidence of love for those who are heading in the wrong direction, for those who are unwilling to repent of sin, those who exhibit various forms of hypocrisy or hard-heartedness or arrogance or pride. Lord, help us to see that apart from your grace, that's where we would all be going anyway. Help us not to become arrogant or boastful, to think we're somehow superior to other people. But Lord, help us by the gospel of Jesus Christ to be humbled, to be aware of how we ourselves struggle with sin, and to realize how much we need you, and how much we're loved by you because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us in his death and resurrection. I pray today, Lord, that you would give us greater compassion for the lost. Make our church, I pray, a hospital for sinners, a place where people can be real, where they can honestly acknowledge their struggles, and where the gospel of Jesus Christ is what binds us together and causes us to find hope and encouragement and strength in the battles that we face with our idolatrous hearts. Because, Lord, we thank you that you've given us hope, you've given us healing, you've given us help, and it's in Jesus Christ. We pray that his gospel and his mighty spirit will be working in us and through us when your truth is spoken and when your truth is heeded in love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.